fire well your service does not go overlooked so thank you very much yeah yeah okay so now we are getting back into the book of acts so let's open our bible say word eh, all right um you can scroll there i got a one there we go word you carried the group man whoever you were uh let's open our bibles uh to acts 11 um or scroll there in your uh, tablet or cell phone. I mean, many of us have the entire book of Acts memorized, so just orient your mind there. Uh, and so I want to remind you, uh, we were talking about love lenses, so I went and picked these up. Um, you can get yourself a pair. I love you. Eh. I love you. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be great if it was that easy? You could just, like, throw on a pair of love lenses and just love the world, you know, and I... As I talked about that, I didn't realize that I was going to be given opportunity to put that message and series of messages uh, into practice and apply it in my own life. Uh, as many of you know, last week I was not here. Uh, in fact, Eddie, uh, our, where is Eddie at? Eddie, where are you at? Eddie did a fantastic job. First Kings 19, thank you. That was a very medicinal message uh, through the life of that manic depressive prophet Elijah. I love him. I can really connect with Elijah, and you did a fantastic job uh, last week. But the reason why Eddie filled in is because I got a call on Friday, uh, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, from the chaplain of a prison in Arizona, uh, letting me know that my father uh, was in a coma and was on a ventilator. And uh, at that point, there was nothing else the doctors could do, and they were seeking permission to remove him from life support as his next of kin. And so I immediately got on the phone with the warden and got clearance uh, to go, and so I packed up and drove uh, about 14, 15 hours straight through to Tucson. I got there. I was, I was living on Pringles and coffee, which, by the way, fantastic combination uh, for the nutritionally aware. And so I get to the hospital, and uh, just a surreal sight, you know, to walk in to see my dad handcuffed and shackled, uh, two correctional officers in the room, and... Um, Man, I don't, I don't know how to describe the experience, but God gave me such a peace and the ability to just love him. Uh, not a worthy man. Uh, lived a, a real rough life and hurt a lot of people along the way. Didn't deserve the least kindness, but God allowed me to be there and to give him cold compresses and to, to pray with him and hold his hand and tell him how much he's loved and, and to play the Beatles. Uh, he loved the Beatles, so we listened to the Beatles for like 10 hours. And uh, just sitting with him, and at 9.30 on Saturday morning, he was removed from the ventilator, and then 9.30 a.m., when many of you were gathering here uh, for church services, uh, that's when he, he took his final breath. And I, I just, the most peaceful, just watched him slip into eternity. And, it, you know, the privilege that I had two and a half years prior was that I was able to lavish him in God's love. And share with him the message of Christ. And I, I feel like God has a word for me to share with you. And it's going to relate to forgiveness and resentment. Family, many of us carry around that toxin. And it's never so poignant than it is during the holiday season. This is the time when families come together. And, and there's that resentment and there's that toxin of unforgiveness that we carry around. And, and I just want to encourage you in this. This is what God showed me with my dad. Forgiveness, like true forgiveness is being able to love somebody and not needing anything in return. When I sat with my dad, there, I didn't need anything from him. He, he was totally forgiven. There, there was no resentment. And I want to encourage you, it's a process, okay? I, I wish I could just, la, 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 like wave a magic wand and it all just go away. It doesn't work that way. 
But I ask that you encourage, I encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to have that work in your heart and your life because I'll tell you, it's, it's the greatest gift. You give yourself, family. Forgiveness and letting go of resentment is the greatest gift you can give yourself this holiday season. Amen? Okay, so that was free. So, uh, we are back in Acts chapter 11, and I don't know about you, but my memory is kind of rusty when it comes to this particular passage, so I want to kind of reorient our minds to where we are in the narrative, the flow of the book of Acts. Uh, up until this point, we, we have met a man by the name of Cornelius, a high-ranking Roman official who had seen a vision. He was a devout, faithful follower of the God of Israel, even as a Gentile. And he had a vision at about the ninth hour or in the morning, and in this vision, this angel told him to send to Joppa to a guy by the name of Simon, the tanner's house, to go get a guy by the name of Simon, who is also called Peter. And so can we bring up that? Oh, there it is, the map. Great job, Shelly. Okay, so he is in the city. I love maps, by the way. You all love maps like I love maps? Okay, so here's the deal. I encourage you in your own personal Bible study, as you're reading about different locations and places in the Scripture, go to the map in the back of your Bible or flip there in your app. Orient your mind to where these places are. I mean, this is actual living history. Anyway, so he's in Caesarea has this vision that he is supposed to send for a guy by the name of Simon Peter who is staying in Joppa. And so uh, Cornelius loads up a couple of his servants and one of his soldiers, a devout soldier, and sends them 30 miles to the south to go to Simon the Tanner's house to go get Simon, who's also called Peter. And it just so happens that as the two servants and the one soldier make their way into the city of Joppa a day later, at that exact moment, Simon called Peter was up on a rooftop enjoying the Mediterranean air and about 12 o'clock becomes hungry. And in that hunger, he goes into a trance. And in that trance, he sees this great sheet unfurl or a great uh, sail unfurl before him. And on this sheet were all kinds of animals, clean and unclean animals, ceremonially clean and ceremonially unclean animals. And then he hears this unbelievable statement from God like, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And in that moment, we come to discover that the, the picture was not given about food. That was not the purpose. The purpose was to tear down the walls of prejudice that were erected in the heart of not only Peter, but the early church. And we've been meditating on this reality that Jesus is in the business, family. Jesus is in the business of tearing down the walls of prejudice in our hearts and in our lives so that the gospel can break out. And I can't think of uh, any more poignant conversation to have in this particular generation that we find ourselves in this particular culture that is literally entrenched in prejudice. Now, Jesus is in the business of tearing down those walls so that the gospel can break out. And the prejudice in the heart of Peter and in the early church was a prejudice against the Gentiles. And so once that wall is torn down, Peter joins the two servants and the soldier, and they make their way back to Caesarea, and it just so happens, oh, I love the just so happens, right? The sovereignty of God. As they enter into Caesarea, the house of Cornelius is full of Gentiles. Peter preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls. They get saved, and we're like, yeah, Acts 10, that's great, because the church is born. The Gentile church is born. And without Acts chapter 10, and really, Acts chapter 11, we wouldn't be here as believers, family. If God had not broken into time and space to tear down that wall of prejudice, the gospel would not really have gone out to the Gentiles. And while this is a great response for us, like we're celebrating, oh, this is so wonderful, the response in Jerusalem was not celebratory. 
In fact, there were some real serious questions and some serious debate that was going on. And the questions in the debate and the discussion focused on two questions, two very important questions. And you may be sitting here this morning going, I don't know how important these questions are. I'm going to tell you right now, it's central. These questions are central to who we are as believers and who we are as a church. Okay? The first question, simple, is this. Who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? Now, in the first century, there was serious debate and discussion because the common belief was Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, he's the Jewish Savior, he's the Jewish Lord. So essentially, he came, he died, he rose for the Jewish people. The gospel was for the Jews, that when Christ died, he died on the cross for the Jewish people. Which leads to the second question that was being discussed and debated. What must a person do to be saved? Now, you may not think this is important, but I'll tell you right now, there are people right now who are asking this question, what must I do to be saved? What must I accomplish? And there was serious discussion and belief that if someone was going to be saved, and I say someone, specifically a Gentile person, if they were going to be saved, then they would first have to become Jewish. That they would have to be circumcised. That they, they would have to put themselves under the taskmaster of the law and of the Torah and this is the exact debate and discussion that Peter is about to make his way into. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard, they heard, and this, is, this would have been totally the news of tabloids. This would seem unbelievable. They heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And so why we celebrate that as Gentiles, as the news spread around the established trade routes in Israel and surrounding region, it spread quick, and it wasn't the content of celebration. They, it was, seemed too incredible that the gospel had not only gone to the Gentiles, but Peter, as an apostle, had entered the home of a Gentile. He'd enjoyed table fellowship with Gentiles. He had shared the gospel with them, baptized them, and welcomed them into the church. These were uncircumcised, unclean Gentiles. It seemed too incredible, too incredible that Peter would ever do that and too incredible that the gospel was enough to save, that all a person would have to do is believe. It was too incredible to believe that somehow God would accept Gentiles into the church as Gentiles. So this is the, the mess that Peter walks into in verse 2. Can we have that map one more time? I promise this is the last time I bring up the map, but I love maps. Okay, so Caesarea, uh, that's where Peter and six, count them, six of his fellow Jewish believers are. And uh, the, the word spreads that, that he has shared the gospel and he has eaten with and he spent time with Gentiles. So he makes his way, they make their way to Jerusalem. I don't know if you can see Jerusalem, there's the Dead Sea. And up to the left, to the north a little bit is Jerusalem. And so they go up to Jerusalem. That may seem odd in your mind, but everywhere was away from. Every, anytime someone approached Jerusalem, you went up to, regardless if you're traveling north, south, east, or west. Anyway, it was the center of Jewish life. So they make their way up to Jerusalem, and as they make their way into Jerusalem, they are immediately, uh, they are immediately thrown into a very intense interrogation, verse 2. We see it captured for us. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So now a little bit of context. Uh, there is a group here that is described as the circumcision party. I've been to a lot of parties in my day. <laughs> Never quite been to one of those. I'm not sure I'm RSVPing for that one. 
Uh, but so we understand, it's a way of describing a group of people in Jerusalem and surrounding regions. They're believers in Jesus, but they were devoutly Jewish. Okay, so they still attended the synagogues and the temple. They observed religious holidays and customs, including dietary restrictions and the other 613 laws found within the Torah. They held a deep ingrained prejudice against the Gentiles. Family, we need to realize there were some rabbis, Jewish rabbis that taught in the first century that God created the Gentiles to kindle the fire of hell. That's some pretty deep ingrained prejudice. And so when they ask Peter and his six associates, when they make this statement, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them, they're not rejoicing in that. They are absolutely beside themselves. This is an interrogation. I think of the thick irony, though, when I, when I think of these, these religious Christians, because think about Jesus. Who did Jesus hang out with? Those types of people, right? And wasn't that the content of most of the dispute coming from the religious people? Doesn't he know who he's eating with? Doesn't he know who he just touched right there? Doesn't he? He's like, do you know how jacked you are? And I think of this. This type of religiosity is now found in the church. Where they're like, I can't believe you ate with those kinds of people. I don't know what it is about religion and religious people, but somewhere along the line, we start to elevate ourselves and think we're above somebody else. And like, we've deserved salvation. Oh, I've got some pretty, I'm, I'm pretty worth it, you know, when Jesus, me and him are homies, you know, but you're kind of outside the group. And in this religious mindset, there was no way they could ever believe that God would accept the Gentiles as Gentiles, as they were. They would have to do something. Religious people are always focused on getting you to do something. I quote here from Dr. Constable. He makes the point, the major thrust of this passage is to emphasize the fact that God fully accepted Gentiles into the church as Gentiles. See that, that, those two questions, what must a person do to be saved and who is the gospel for? The thrust of this passage is that God accepted Gentiles as Gentiles. And so Peter is going to explain himself. I love this because as Peter is explaining himself, he puts all the blame on God. He's like, look, guys, don't be blaming me for this. This is all God's fault. I love when God gets the blame. Um, so Peter retells the story. And if you've ever read uh, Acts 10 and 11 just on your own, you're like, wow, this story repeats itself over and over and over. Couldn't he just summed it up? Like, where's the Cliff Notes version? But we need to realize there's a reason why it repeats. We get it from three vantage points. We get the story from the vantage point of the author who gives us the bird's eye view. We get the from the vantage of Cornelius who tells the story. And now we're going to get the story from the vantage point of Peter. Anytime something repeats itself in the scripture, it highlights its importance. Again, this is the most important section of scripture in the book of Acts as it relates to us as Gentiles. Anyway, verse 4. Peter began and explained to them in order. That means he went point by point. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, this is what he, this is what he observed. Animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. He's like, look, this sheet unfurled before me, and there were all these animals on it, and they were like clean and unclean. It was like, it was making me nauseous, and I was looking at these animals, and I couldn't figure out why, why I was seeing this vision, and then there was a voice, and this voice, the voice of God, told me to do something, and I can't believe this voice even said it, verse 7, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill, and eat, 
Can you imagine he's like turning to, the, to his fellow Jewish believers and says, oh, I just wanted to throw up and I can't believe what it said. And, and I said to the Lord, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. He's like, look, I, I was trying to stand in my kosher ways and not to take anything unclean into my life. But then this happened three times, says Peter. I find this fascinating, the trilogy of Peter's life, right? He, he gets this vision three times. The story is recorded for us in the, te- the text three times. He denies Jesus three times. He tells Jesus he loves him three times. I don't know the significance of that, but apparently for Peter, everything had to come in threes. Okay, anyway, let's look at verse 7. He said, I heard that, verse, uh, I heard that uh, voice saying, rise, Peter, kill, eat, verse 9. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. It was all drawn up into heaven. And behold, I love the behold. It, by the way, that's just a note of sovereignty. Like God's in control. Like he's controlling time and space. Behold, at that very moment, as he's meditating on this enigmatic vision, at that very moment, there's a knock at the door. At that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the spirit, who's to blame here? God told me to do it, and the Holy Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction, important statement, that I was not going to, that he was told to not make a distinction whether they're clean or unclean, Jew or Gentile, and to go without any hesitation, and so he does. In fact, Peter points out, he goes, oh, and by the way, these six brothers also accompanied me, and so there's six other guys who are standing there like, look, he forced us, we... He said we were supposed to go, so we went. You know, he's got, they're all on trial. And the reason why Peter took six in Israel to establish a testimony, you needed three witnesses. He took twice the amount of witnesses he would need to establish the issue. Verse 13, they arrived, they entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be what? Saved. You and all of your household. See, this is what's interesting. Cornelius, a devout man, faithful in alms and giving in prayers and fear of the Lord, still needed a message to be saved. Okay, family? And that message that he needed to hear is the gospel. Okay, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the payment of the world's sins, his burial, and his conquering of death through resurrection, ultimately his ascending into heaven at the right hand of God in his glorified state, as we await his, his return. And this amazing reality that all who believe, whoever believes, everyone who believes will be what? Will be saved. No partiality, no favorites, no prejudice, no bias. All who believe in him will be saved. And as we saw a few weeks ago, as Peter is preaching, like Peter has this huge sermon. He's ready to deliver this sermon. He like prepared it all the way from, from Joppa to Caesarea. He's like in his first point. At that moment, as the words are coming out of his mouth and they are entering the ears of the Gentiles, they are so on the verge of salvation that when they hear, all you must do is believe, they believe, the Holy Spirit falls, and they are literally, at that moment, saved, radically saved. Peter's like, but I didn't finish my sermon. Which is heartbreaking for preachers. Poor Peter. Verse 16. Now let's look at verse 15 again. Because he says, as I began to speak, see, he's like in the middle, the Holy Spirit fell on him just as it did on us at the beginning. He's like, guys, remember Pentecost? Yeah, like a Pentecost of sorts happened among the Gentiles. 
And Peter goes, and it was at that moment I remembered. I remembered what Jesus said. Now verse 16. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You being those who believe, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. See, John's baptism was a physical baptism. Jesus' baptism is a spiritual baptism, and it, and it highlights this importance that we need to be born again. Just as Jesus was having that, that confusing conversation with Nicodemus, a religious leader, in John chapter 3, Jesus said, you were physically born, but you need to be born again. That is, born of the Spirit. To receive eternal life, to have the Holy Spirit, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so with all tenderness, Peter then turns to his, his, his associates, his fellow Jewish believers, and this is what he says, verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Peter again is like, if you want to blame somebody, blame God, it's all his fault. And who am I to stand in God's way? And I'm just like, if the church, if churches could just wrap their minds around this, if Christians could just wrap, if we could just wrap our minds around this, we need to get out of God's way. I have no idea what it is about religion and legalism that makes it so enticing. Like behavior modification, I don't get it. Maybe it's because we like need rules and we need these boundaries and grace just can't be enough. But we're putting up roadblocks in front of people and it's keeping people from the gospel. We try to trap the gospel in the Holy Spirit. We try to keep it secret and hidden and gosh, we've got to let it out. I don't know why we try to keep it hidden, but for some ungodly reason, Christians receive the free gift of grace and then somewhere along the way convince themselves that they have earned it and instead of freely offering it to all we hide it, and we tell people things like, you got to get your life together. you got to cover up your tats. you got to clean up your language. About a month and a half ago, two months ago, I was in sunny San Diego. I was going to the anointed In-N-Out burger restaurant. Many of you have come to experience the anointed double-double animal style anyway. Some of you are like still hardcore, like, no, it's Whataburger. And then you got those weirdos from the East Coast. They're like, no, it's White Castle. And you're like, those little things? How's it? Anyway, um, <laughs> if you're from the East Coast, we love you. Just kidding. Um, anyway, so I'm driving, same road, always drive, know exactly where In-N-Out is. I can see In-N-Out. It's right there. Like, I can smell the French fries. And I'm driving, and then there's this roadblock. And I'm like, but dude, it's right there. Come on, man. Like, and in this detour, we got to go all the way around, and, and finally, you know, we finally make it to in and out And you know what? That's just exactly what the church does, man. We put up roadblocks, and people come in, they're like, I'm hungry, and I'm thirsty. And we're like, oh, uh, you know, you're going to have to make a couple turns. But I see him. He's right there. Oh, wait, you can't go right to Jesus. You can't just go right to him. Look how messy you are. Oh, you got a ways to go, buddy. But that's okay, we've got directions. We'll go ahead and send you on your journey. No more roadblocks. 
Because he is the bread of life. People come in hungry. He is the river, li- river of living water. People come in thirsty. I love the response. Started off as an interrogation, and then they begin to praise. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Oh, it's the best thing for religious people. Just be quiet. Just. And people get all religious with me, too. I'm just like. Because it stinks, doesn't it? Religiosity stinks. It's the sales pitch. Anyway, that's just my philosophy. Uh, they glorify God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted, granted repentance that leads to life. And they're like, wow, God's plan of salvation is way bigger than we ever imagined. Family, God's plan of salvation is way bigger than we ever imagined. You know, did you realize that God is swinging wide the gate of heaven to people we wouldn't even open our door for? It's staggering the types of people that he is inviting into his heaven. You know what? If I was filling heaven, I would not have invited me. And some of you are like, yeah, no kidding. I mean, not about me, but about you, right? Like, you're like, do you, I mean, do you think that you're deserving? Are we deserving of it? No. I mean, if we really thought about it, would any of us have invited ourselves to heaven? I mean, it's staggering for me to think that Jesus left the 99 to go find that one lost sheep named John Carroll, that he went to rescue my dad. What kind of God do we serve? That he allows those kinds of people into his eternity, a gracious and loving one. And it would be great if I could tell you that this, this division, this discussion, this this denomination, really this distortion ended here. Like nobody kept preaching about you got to be Jewish first to be saved, but it doesn't die. Heresies, for whatever reason, don't die. So in chapter 15, we're going to see this, another section of religious roadblocks, but it says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It doesn't die. And you know what? The heresy continues today. All kinds of things that people must do before they are saved. And, and in any way, as you read through the rest of the New Testament, the, the book of Galatians, the epistle of Galatians, large chunk of Romans, really the whole chunk of the New Testament is all centered on disputing and refuting this terrible idolatry. It is repetitiously driven home that who is the gospel for? Everyone. And what must a person do to be saved? Not as sure of ourselves. Believe. So here's a few applications for you. I'm going I'm to conclude here. Because now I'm thinking about cheeseburgers. Um, no religious roadblocks. I'm not sure if churches and Christians realize that we're supposed to be the agents and representatives of the gospel. Like, I, I sometimes get the feeling in, in church environments that we're more concerned about the pews rather than people. Like, we're more concerned about keeping our carpets clean and keeping things shiny and polished than being a conduit into eternal life. Like, demanding people behave 
well, I can't believe those people came in and acted that way. I can't believe they talked that way. I can't believe people in culture live a sinful life. I'm like, dude, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Why are we trying to like, put on them a Christian ethic or morality? They don't have Jesus. We, as Christians and as a church, we are the conduit family of the gospel. And we need to get out of the way. There is a land of the living and there's the land of the dead. And the bridge across that is the bridge of love. Okay, so I, I don't know if we're catching on here. Um, I'm just going to get crazy. Okay, so there is a bridge. Okay, so I want you to think about this. I'm just going to go outside. Hold on. Um, I've never done this before. I don't know. I'll probably freak everybody out in the lobby. Hey, Gary, how you doing, buddy? Okay, so just imagine. Can you all still hear me if you can yell out? Okay, good. I'm still being heard. Um, imagine somebody is, they park in the parking lot. Hey, how you doing, guys? Um, and so they're in the parking lot, and they walk through the front doors, and imagine our hallway is the bridge of love, right? They're walking down the uh, hallway, and they say hi to Cam in the kitchen. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And they walk in here, and what's the first thing they see and encounter? Awkward stairs judgmental glances. I hope they don't sit in my aisle. Thank you. No, I, I don't think that's what they experience here. They experience a place of grace, don't they? And of humility and of love. Yeah, right on, man. Family, this is the bridge of love. You realize that? We, as the church, we're the bridge of love. We need to be that. You know the message that we told the city of Rowlett when we were in the parade? Well, we told them a lot of things. One, that we're just like crazy, and we love, what is the, the wallop? What's the dance? The wobble. <laughs> that was pretty sweet, right? I almost fell off the chair. Um, no, the one message that we declared to the city of Rowlett is you are loved. Over and over and over again. Family, there's no religious roadblocks here. You don't have to behave. You don't have to cover up your tats. You don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to have clean language. Just come as you are. Because Jesus, here's the reality. Jesus takes us as we are and makes us who we'll be. Amen? So no religious roadblocks. Okay, so uh, let's just invite the world. Amen? Let's just like tell everybody, like, Jesus loves you. You are loved. Let's get the message out. Because here, second point is, who is the gospel for? Class. Everybody. We all get that? Okay, enough with that point. So third, what must a person do to be saved? So here's the reality. Okay. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and he has conquered death and risen. The Bible says that all who believe in him will be saved. So the question I have for you, your series of questions. Do you, do you individually, personally believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he was buried in the grave? Do you believe that he has risen from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father in glorified state and he is going to return? Yes? Then guess what? You are saved. 
Isn't that incredible? God, give us the joy of our salvation. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace, your goodness to us. Fill us with that type of joy. And Lord, I have not been joyous. Oh, I have been anxious and angry and fearful and intense. Just a a brutal spirit has been in my heart. But I know that your grace is enough and I know that you have saved my life. And I cling to that salvation today. And Lord, I rejoice that we all can say that we, we believe. And with our lips and our hearts, we have testified that we are recipients of your gift. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would get out of the way, that we would take this gift to the world, and that every single person who walks through these doors would sense that this is the place of love. Please, Jesus, allow Firewheel to be the bridge of love from death to life. If you are here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have heard the gospel. All you must do is believe. Do you believe? I pray those words do not leave you alone. I pray you give your heart to him. Thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful place of grace. In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together. You all did marvelous today. It's time for a burger. Go ahead and post on Facebook your pictures with your favorite burger. I'd love to see those. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all till we meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, family, you are loved. Now go tell the world, go proclaim, go demonstrate to the world that they are too. Go give the gift away. Have a great week.